Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Sunday morning, October the 9th, 2022. It's a quiet morning in California, although, as I think we will learn this morning, there never really are quiet mornings in California. Um, three things are coming together in this show, in this particular show, which we touched on before. Um, we did a show uh, last month with the journalist Joe Pompeo, a real crime story about what a scandalous 1922 murder tells us about America's current obsession with true crime. This was a crime that was never formally um, uh, solved uh, called Blood and Ink, uh, a murder on the East Coast. Um, so that's one aspect of today's show, real crime, a very popular subject. Uh, we've done other shows on real crime, one with uh, John Allure, whose best-selling book, uh, Wish You Were Here, is about the killing of his sister. Uh, meanwhile, we did another show last year with the Albanian political thinker, Leah Upi. Uh, her book, Freedom, well, sorry, her book, Free, tells the story of her growing up in communist Albania in the voice of a 12-year-old. Um, that's a, the second piece of today's show, the, uh, the voice, the authorial voice of a 12-year-old. Uh, and finally, we did a show about um, an evil mother-in-law, a fictional show with the novelist Ainsley Hogarth um, about a mother-in-law from hell. Her book, uh, her novel, Mother Thing, covers this. Um, today's show brings all this together uh, with my guest, uh, Deborah Holt Larkin. Uh, it's a book about real crime written from the point of view of a 12-year-old. And the murderer is an evil mother-in-law. Uh, Deborah Holt Larkin is joining us from her home in San Diego. Deborah, welcome. Glad to be here. We had some technical difficulties earlier, Deborah, but you stayed with us. And thank you so much. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this conversation. Well, is too. it all quiet in San Diego, uh, in Southern California at the moment? It, it is pretty quiet. Um, right no here. murders on a, on a nice sunny... It's always sunny in San Diego, isn't it? Right. Well, I, I read the paper this morning and I didn't see any new murders that have been being reported. So tell me the story of this uh, of this book, A Lovely Girl. It's your first book, uh, Deborah, and it's very, very original in the way you've approached it. It's a well-known murder, but you're coming at it in an incredibly original way. Tell me about the book. Um, well... This story, I was I was uh, a child when this happened in my hometown, uh, when Olga Duncan disappeared and uh, then her body was discovered in a shallow grave uh, out on a rural highway near my home. I mean, it was very much of a pivotal moment with me. I this what was year? A, sorry, Deborah. Oh, sorry, nineteen. I, I apologize for interrupting. Go Maybe ahead. you could just very briefly tell us about the case, the okay. year, the characters sure. involved, and then we can get into the book. Okay. Um, it was in 1958, uh, a nurse named Olga Duncan disappeared from her apartment in the, in, in the night, vanished. Uh, 
she was married to an up and coming uh, criminal defense attorney named Frank Duncan. And uh, they had only been married a short time. Uh, I think about five months, um, although Olga was seven months pregnant and he was having trouble with his mother. So the mother was uh, demanding that Frank leave his wife and move back home with him. And uh, Frank did that, being the dutiful son that he was. She was threatening to kill herself if uh, she didn't do that. And she had attempted a suicide in the past. So he left home and moved back with mom. And uh, the night that Olga disappeared, she had a couple of nurse friends over and she was um, showing them baby clothes that she had made for her unborn child. And they left around 1110 and uh, Olga was never seen alive again. But your approach, I mean, this in itself, it's, it's an iconic real crime story, rather like the one that Joe Pompeo covers in Blood and Ink uh, mm -hmm. from the 1920s. Um, but you cover this in the book in a very original way, because as you say, in 1958, you were a young girl, and it's, uh, uh, it was one of the formative experiences of your youth. Uh, perhaps you might tell us what you remember as, what, a 12-year-old when this crime happened? Um, well, my father was a, a reporter uh, for the local paper in Ventura, and uh, he was... Um, he brought home newspapers all the time. When he came home, he would bring in other newspapers. And he had brought home the Santa Barbara News Press and uh, left it on the dining room table, folded to this very small story uh, about uh, a nurse who had uh, disappeared. And I read that story and uh, I, I was, I don't know, it just kind of shocked me. This was end of the 50s, just before all the dramatic changes that, that came with the, the 60s. With the 60s. And um, everything was, you know, it, it seemed like everything was so safe and that bad things happened in down in Los Angeles or up in San Francisco. So that's when I first became interested. Um, my dad ended up, um, <clears throat> she disappeared from Santa Barbara, but they killed her in, in Ventura. So it ended up to be a Ventura trial. And uh, my dad covered that case. And as I say in the book, he had no filter. My dad just, you know, he didn't try to spare us anything that was news of the world and um, talked about it over the around the dining room table every every night and i really became obsessed with it um, yeah you begin the book uh the year olga duncan disappeared was the year my mother hired the convict babysitter yeah. mother worked as a psychiatric social worker at the state mental hospital in camarillo california there's a kind of hitchcockian quality to this narrative your narrative and of course the murder um uh, itself uh, i mean it, it brings to mind it doesn't just bring to mind from hitchcock's point of view psycho but perhaps even more so shadow of a doubt which was uh his 1943 movie about a murder um in santa rosa to the north but a similar kind mm -hmm. of provincial suburban idealized mm -hmm. american world this shattered your world did it it did i mean i i was very naive i like i say it was the 50s i lived in this little suburban neighborhood and you know nothing ever that i knew about um nothing like this bad things like this happened and you know my first reaction yeah i was concerned about olga but i thought well who's next you know and it sort of fed into my worst nightmares that somehow um you know someone would come into the night and get into our house and, you know, take us away. 
And your father, as you say, was a local reporter and he had an mm -hmm. unfiltered voice and perception. Um, did you ever confront him about this? Did you ever say, please keep quiet because it's giving me nightmares? No, <laughs> I, I was the one pestering for, for questions. I wanted to know about this. And he kept saying, you, you don't need to worry about this. I don't know if you remember the beginning of A Shadow of a Doubt, um, but it has a young girl, actually, she's a little older than 12, sitting in her bedroom and saying to herself, I wish something interesting would happen here. And of course, yeah. when something interesting happens, it's her nightmare. Mm -hmm. um, were you also, perhaps as a 12-year-old, rather bored by the uh, conventional suburban life that you were experiencing? And maybe this murder brought some some color? You know, it did, bring, it did bring some color. I don't remember being bored. I was, you know, living kind of a happy family life. My The street that I lived in was filled with other little girls. And, you know, I was busy all the time. So I don't think that I was bored, but this just startled me that maybe there was something. I was kind of a warrior anyway. Um, and my my dad was, you know, worried about all kinds of things. He was a, a very quirky guy. And um, so this sort of gave me something else to really worry about. Yeah, and I think one of the things when I was thinking about your book and the differences between then, 1958 and today, is the power of local newspapers. There aren't men like your father around now because no. there are very, very few professional journalists working for local newspapers. And the power of the local press was immense. There was no Facebook, there was no internet, there was no Google, uh, there was barely network television. Right, and uh, he was very well known in the community you know, a popular man. Um, and he not only, you know, uh, covered crime and politics and, and a lot of other things, he also wrote a weekly um, column. And he wrote it, uh, you know, he, he, he wrote it about things that he was interested in, and he was interested in every, everything. And he also, for part of him, wrote kind of a, um, it was a family call of him, kind of uh, Irma Bombeck or Dave Barry. I don't know if that they're going to be familiar to your listeners, but it was kind of a funny column about what goes on at home. And, and he wrote a column like that. And that's how I eventually kind of used that style when I was interweaving uh, my memoir into um, the, the, the true crime story. It is a memoir and a true crime st story combined. Right. It's your first book. And and what you try to do is, um, and, and, and I'm quoting you again, when I think back to Elizabeth Duncan's trial, I hear my father's voice, his dramatic profanity lay, sometimes humorous stories about witness testimony and crazy antics in the courtroom. Um, tell me a little bit about your father's background. Where did he acquire those narrative skills? Well, he grew up on a cattle ranch in Montana and there was a town nearby. And um, well, he said he read a story in something like Boy's Life about a newspaper reporter. And from that minute, he was a boy at the time. He knew that that's what he wanted to be. He wanted to be a reporter. He went into town, he talked to the guy that ran the local newspaper into giving him a job. And I think he picked up, you know, type or something from the floor. And eventually he, they, the, he got the guy to um, let him write a, a little story. So he said he would go into town and you know, sit, look around and see if he if he saw somebody that he didn't recognize, and he would go up and and ask him, well, what what was he doing in Ekalaka today? And maybe the guy said, well, you know, I came in to sell some cattle or whatever. And uh, you know, he wrote those little things as probably as a teenager, 
And it sounds uh, like a great father and a great character. He was, he was a very quirky guy. One guy at, at spoke at his uh, uh, service, his funeral service, said he was the least phony man I ever met, and he just said things that were on his mind. He was very, very funny. And um, I, somebody contacted me just in the last week since the boy, since the book came out, who was uh, a colleague, colleague of him at work. And he said, I was really struck when you said that your father had no filter. And he says, because that's the way he was in the newsroom. We never knew what he was going to say, what was going to come out of his mouth. But Who's going to play him in the movie? <laughs> Jimmy Stewart could, but he won't because yeah, of course he's, he's not fine. around. He is a Jimmy Stewart kind of character. <laughs> yeah. um, as I said, this is your first book. Um, and without wishing to sound ageist, you've come to writing. I mean, you've, you've done yeah. writing in the past, but you haven't written a book relatively late in life. Um, why, why the book, Deborah? Why, why have you waited so long? You clearly have significant talent to do this, not just to write a book about um, real mm -hmm. crime, an, an important uh, case, but also to acquire the voice of a 12-year-old. Where did you learn all this? Well, I think it was just a matter of experience. First of all, I have a good ear for remembering the, the cadence of people's voices and how they sound. Um, I heard my, vo my father's voice when I was writing this. And um, I... I when I went away to college, I thought I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't really say anything. I thought that, well, that sounded like kind of a lofty goal. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't sure that I could do it. And then this was the seventies and uh, I ended up becoming an, an elementary school teacher. Like a lot of the women in the 1970s, when you got a college education, you became a teacher. And uh, I eventually became a principal of an elementary school. And one, I did use my writing talents there. So I wrote a lot of grants. I got a lot of grants, a lot of money for my school because I think of, of having a talent for telling a story when you write a grant. A lot of times those things are kind of dry. So, but I never really um, gave up on my uh, dream of becoming a writer. And as soon as my youngest son went away to college, I enrolled in the University of California, San Diego, had a creative writing program, an extension creative writing program. And I probably took 30 units or more of that. And this, this Duncan case, the story of Olga Duncan, just stuck with me. Um, I my dad continued to talk about it over the years. And all of the things that happened, um, it, it was just a very compelling story in a lot of ways. You so haven't I, mentioned, uh, Deborah. you haven't mentioned uh, your mom as much. Um, I just saw a movie, Don't Worry Darling, by Olivia Wilde about sort of mm -hmm. idealized female-male marriages in the 1950s. Um, it has a peculiar quirk at the end. It's been heavily criticized, although I didn't actually think it was a bad film. Uh -huh. um, certainly the world that you're writing about is one where the man worked, the woman stayed at home. And yet the interesting twist on this, of course, is that Elizabeth Ann Duncan, the killer, mm -hmm. uh, was a woman. Um, and usually killers were men. Exactly. Uh, well, do you want to hear about my mom? Is that what you asked? Well, tell me about your mom and the... the, the 
I'm not sure if there's a feminist angle here, but the, the gendered angle of yeah. sort of very traditional family life and then this evil mother-in-law interfering with her son's marriage and, and, right. and organizing. She didn't do the killing herself, but she organized the killing. Right. You know, and, and my parents' marriage wasn't as traditional 1950s as you might think, because my mother was nine years older than my father. They wow. met, I know. They met, she was young looking, but they met in the army um, during World War II and married um, soon after they were discharged. And so my mother already uh, had a career, had had a career as a psychiatric social worker before she went to the army. And that's what she did in the, in the army. She was working at the, um, the army hospital in Pasadena, uh, working with uh, shell shocks, well, a PTSD soldiers uh, at the time. And so when she got married, she continued to work at um, Nor Norwalk um, Psychiatric Hospital, one of the California hospitals. And uh, then when they moved to Ventura, uh, she worked at Camarillo. And when I was born, she didn't stay home for more than maybe a year. And she went back to work and continued to work as a psychiatric social worker all through their married life. And my dad was kind of laughed. He says, well, you know, your mother makes more money than I do. And that didn't seem to bother him at all. She, she never warned him about these grisly stories to her 12-year-old <laughs> daughter as a psychiatric yeah. worker. She would try to shush him, you know, don't scare the, you're scaring the girls, Bob. Don't, don't continue that. But my mother is, is, even though she had this career and everything, my dad was, his personality was just big. And um, he definitely dominated that, our family life. And I think, um, her marriage because she was he was very vol volatile and uh, she spent a lot of time trying to you know keep him calm down uh in the the pompeo uh book i told you about uh i'm not sure if you're familiar with it blood and ink the i've seen it i have not read it yet but yeah, i, 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 I read about it jazz age double murder mm -hmm. that no one ever no one ever took responsibility in court or otherwise for right. there's still many mysteries are there still any mysteries of the the Olga Duncan case, or did everything come out in court pretty much? Well, I I feel like that, yes, everything about the crime came came out in court. There's a lot of kind of lore about the, the case that you might see online in, in Ventura, where I grew up. Some people will say that, well, well, Frank Duncan got away with murder. He That they think that somehow he was part of his mother's conspiracy to have his mm. wife killed. Do you think and, he was? No. And, and the district attorney who um, prosecuted the case uh, didn't think he was either because I, I was able to, to read, I have access to the memoir that Roy Gustafson, the, the district attorney who prosecuted the cases, wrote, but was never published. And he wrote about a lot of his thoughts and uh, about the witnesses and um, about trial strategies that were very helpful. But he pointed out, and, and I certainly saw this too, that this case would have never been solved if uh, Frank Dun Duncan hadn't dragged his mother down to the police station because when she was trying to pay off the killers, she cashed this check and then made up a story that she was yeah. being extorted. Yeah, the killers, uh, yeah. Luis Estrada Moya yes. and Augustine mm -hmm. Baldonado, they look like killers. Yes. Although they were just petty criminals, they'd never done anything violent before. How much did she pay them? Well, she offered them $6,000, but she didn't have it. 
And so she- and that was I, a lot of money in 1958. Yes, but she was, you know, she just made things up. And she said she would pay them um, uh, $6,000. And then she paid a down payment of $175 that she got when she pawned her wedding rings. And then after uh, Olga was killed, uh, Louis Moya started calling her and, you know, wanting the rest of the money. And she didn't have it. So she gave, you know, some installments. But the total those men got for murdering this young woman was um, $325. And uh, what happened to Frank Duncan after the trial? Did he have a, a regular life after yes. his mother went to jail? And yes, uh, Frank had a regular life. He moved to Los Angeles and he continued practicing criminal law. You know, he was reasonably successful. He married a woman uh, uh, right after the trial uh, and they had a child, but that ended in a divorce. And he then eventually married another woman. They had like a 40-year marriage. And um, he always refused any interviews. He said, uh, when he was asked about his mother's case, he said, um, uh, that's all in the past. I don't talk about that. So he so never- tell me about the mother, Elizabeth uh, Ann Duncan. I mean, she was, and I use this word carefully, a remarkable woman. I mean, she wasn't just- <laughs> Um, a murderer or certainly paying people to, to kill her daughter-in-law who she was jealous of and loathed. But her past was so profoundly shady on every level. She was. And she was a con artist. Uh, that's what I learned in um, uh, all, the extent of her uh, a con artist career. But before all of this, um, she was busy. And when as Frank was growing up, uh, bilking landlords out of money. She would give some sob story and move into an apartment without paying anything. And then it would take months and months for the guy to, the landlord to, to get her out of there. And she went on with that. But then she also liked to marry men. And yeah. she told this story and I, it's, it's just kind of unbelievable that they would believe it. But apparently um, as one of his, his, her ex-husband said, she was a very convincing woman. And um, she would tell this story about how she was inheriting some money uh, from a, a husband, but in the will, it said that she had to be married again to, he, she had to be married at the time to inherit the money. So she would tell these men this story and they would believe her. And she would say, once we, once I then get the inheritance, I'll, I'll give you half or I'll give you so much money. And of course, that never happened because that was all a lie. There was no inheritance. And um, then she would start to bilk money out of them. She would go after them with alimony for alimony. Or one time she even actually made up a child and got child support. So, I mean, she had quite the career as a con artist. And what was her punishment? Mrs. Duncan? Yeah. Elizabeth Duncan? Uh, she was uh, executed in the gas chamber in 1962. She was the last, last woman. She was the last woman in California ever to be executed. So that must have in itself been a massive story. Although at the time, I guess people didn't know she was going to be the last. Do you think no. that was the correct um, judgment? Uh, I don't know. I don't think that would have happened today. I don't think Mrs. Duncan was a danger to go out and murder other people or anything like that. This is a very specific crime that she committed to uh, murder her daughter-in-law but 
the, at the time in, in 1959, when the sentence was actually pronounced, there was no such thing as life imprisonment without the possibility of parole in California. If you got life imprisonment, uh, a life sentence, um, you were eligible for, for parole in seven years. So the district attorney really um, amped that up in, in the penalty trial. And I don't think anybody wanted to see Elizabeth Duncan walking the streets in seven years, but you know that probably wouldn't have happened. Um, I know when she was at Corona Prison waiting for um, uh, her execution that you know she was a model citizen, model prisoner, and well liked by the staff and all the other prisoners. So, and well, yeah, I mean, as you say, she was a con woman. So when yeah, she, she was chose exactly. to be liked. And yeah. then the, the two the two killers were also executed in 1962 they along were. with uh, Duncan. Right, and that was um, at the time in uh, 1958 when they were arrested. There was no Miranda warning, and um, people that were were arrested they didn't they weren't entitled to a free attorney if they couldn't afford one until they were arraigned in court. So the whole time that um, those men were being um, interrogated, they, they didn't have counsel. And I'm not sure that the first one would have confessed if, if they had. Um, and then, uh, yeah, anyway, there, there was no, no uh, warning and they, they both confessed multiple times, including on the stand. There wasn't any doubt that they, they committed the crime. But couldn't one of them ship the other one? Did they both simultaneously kill Dunk? They did it together. Yeah, they actually took turns. They testified on the court and in, in the in the trial of Mrs. Duncan. Oh, and I know what I was going to say that their their attorneys, once they finally got attorneys, tried to negotiate that they would testify against her if they if the DA would take the death penalty off the table. And he absolutely refused. He thought you know that maybe he could he could do that without their testimony. And so then. Um, the, the attorneys went back and said, well, would you split the trials? Because he was planning on trying them all three together. And um, he agreed if they would plead guilty and, and testify against Mrs. Duncan. And then in California, all they had to do was a penalty trial after that. But they, he never took the death penalty off the table. The book is called a, a Lovely Girl, The Tragedy of Olga Duncan and the Trial of One of California's Most Notorious Killers. Was she a lovely girl? I mean, she looks lovely. Well, uh, I, I got that the lovely girl is she was described that way by a number of people. And um, Mrs. Barnett, her landlady at her apartment building, uh, referred to her on a numerous occasion, uh, that lovely, sweet girl. Um, I just wished all of my tenants were like Olga. Uh, and um, her her her. Uh, friends des described her as very devoted to her career as a nurse, and um, some of her friends tried to, you know, persuade her that she needed to get out of this marriage. That, but she just she loved Frank, and she believed that Frank loved her, and somehow that um, when the baby came, uh, things would be better. Even though she did, on one of her friends' advice, consult an attorney about uh, an annulment, but she never did go through with it. And uh, in summary, Deborah, is there a is there a, a sociological, a cultural, a political takeaway about California in the in the late fifties from this from Santa Barbara, this supposedly um, 
ideal place, beautiful by the sea and all the rest of it. Well, I don't know if this you would consider this uh, political or what you're asking about. But one thing that I was taken with is I realized that Olga Duncan never, this never should have happened because multiple people knew in Santa Barbara that Mrs. Duncan was shopping all over town looking for someone uh, to, and this is her words, get rid of her daughter-in-law. And uh, some, and they, a lot of these people testified at the trial, admitting that she had tried to get them to, to do the crime. And that some of them said, well, we just thought that this, you know, this was crazy and that, that she wasn't ever going to do anything like this. Others were um, in, not inclined to go to the police. They were uh, family members of uh, Frank's criminal uh, clients, and they weren't the kind of people who who just voluntarily go went off and talked to the police. So, yeah, she asked I don't know five or six people to do this, and nobody warned Olga. Olga, and nobody. It's, it's certainly yeah. It, it's 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 a very odd reflection that no one would go to the right. police. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, congratulations, Deborah. It's your first book, and I hope it's not your last. The lovely girl, the tragedy of. Olga Duncan and the trial of one of California's most notorious killers, written uh, in the voice of a 12-year-old, a memoir, given that you were 12 at the time and grew up around this, grew right. up in every sense. Um, it's already got a, a starred review uh, on Publishers Weekly, uh, so congratulations on that. They call Thank it you. an excellent debut. Thanks. Uh, wonderful to have new author. Um, what else are you reading, Deborah, in addition uh, what else would you suggest? Uh, everyone needs to go out and buy a lovely girl. It's just out. What else? Right. Would you, suggest you know, um, I'm currently uh, reading a, a, a Vera book by Ann Cleves. Um, and I, I've, I thought about this. Sometimes people ask me what I recommend. And uh, I, I reread all of Tony Hillerman's books during the uh, stay at home and the pandemic. I just, I, I love those books. They just the wide open spaces of the reservation. And that was so, um, that was just so wonderful to read when I was kind of locked in the house. Um, I also like Ann Tyler and I really liked um, her book, Red um, Redhead by the Side of the Road. I, I, I highly recommend that one also.